Hello and welcome to The Last Looks Podcast, a show where we catch up with talented hairstylists and makeup artists in the film and television industry. We'll pick their super creative brains and find out all the good stuff. Join me, your host, Jamie Lee, in finding out what's what in the hair and makeup departments around the world. And now, a word from our sponsor. Sammy, great to have you back on the podcast. Jamie Lee, it's great to be back. Now, I would love to continue our chat about Hask and Setbag must-haves. So last week you told us about the amazing collection of nourishing hair oils Hask offers. So what's in the bag this week? Well, no set bag is complete without our five-in-one leave-in conditioning sprays. This super popular collection offers four different variations, each designed to target a specific hair care problem. It's true. You never want to be caught without a detangler. I mean, ain't that the truth naughty hair is like the bane of my existence (laughs) (laughs) so just to deep dive into these products a bit i'll start off with the argan oil five in one leave-in it conditions and detangles but does so much more this is our number one selling has product we like to call it our miracle product which has five amazing benefits so formulated with argan oil from morocco this specialty blend of ingredients packs your strands with moisturizing and conditioning agents that help restore dry and damaged hair. The five benefits are conditions detangles, adds shine, repairs and controls frizz, provides thermal protection, and lastly moisturizes to prevent breakage. Next, we have our Biotin Boost 5-in-1. It's a lightweight formula that contains biotin, collagen, and coffee, which prevents breakage and helps thicken and detangle fine, limp, thin hair. Then we have our Minoy Coconut 5-in-1, designed with pure coconut oil to soften, detangle, and hydrate super dry strands. So this really improves elasticity for hair so it can feel strong, healthy, and shiny. Finally, there's what quickly has become our hero product. So this is the tea tree oil and rosemary 5-in-1, which cools, soothes, and revitalizes the hair and scalp. So great point of difference, hair and scalp. Also, don't forget about that thermal protection. And as you can see, getting camera-ready hair is as easy when using the Haas collections. And the hairstylist faves found in their set bags provide just what they need. I have to say I love the tea tree and rosemary. I'm all about invigorating that scalp and it smells so good. Thank you. We thought it was really important to come out with a product where the ingredient story is famous for its purifying and invigorating properties. Thanks again to you and Hask. It has been so awesome having you on the podcast, Sammy, and super informative. Amy Lee, it was a pleasure to be here. And let me leave you and your listeners in the trade industry with this. The Haas brand welcomes the opportunity to continue building our relationship with the TV and film styling community. So if we can support a project you're working on, please send us an email at hask at stonemanagement.net and we'd be more than happy to help. That's so cool, Sammy. Thanks again. This was so fun. Thank you for having me. And now our feature presentation. Today, I'm speaking with Vincent Van Dyke, makeup effects designer and owner of Vincent Van Dyke Effects Studio based in LA. 
Vincent and his team have produced work for projects like I, Tonya, Star Trek Picard, American Horror Story, and the latest to look out for, Angeline. Vincent chats about having the opportunity to get into the business at a young age, how he had supportive mentors coming up that shaped him into a successful team leader, business owner, and creative artist. Picture's up. Last looks. Rolling. And action. Welcome to the Last Looks Podcast, Vincent. Thank you so much, Jamie, for having me. Hey, you're welcome. Now, I would like you to finish this sentence for me, okay? Okay. (laughs) Once upon a time, there was a boy named Vincent, and when he grew up, he wanted to be... (laughs) Uh, A special makeup effects artist. You did? Yeah. That has been my dream since um, far before I can actually remember, which is kind of cool. I mean, when I think back to little Vincent and all the things that he wanted to do, He actually already had a a little makeup kit um, that I had put together with stealing some of my mom's old makeup. Mm -hmm. My mom was a was a model, and she had an extensive makeup kit uh, of her own. And uh, and I would grab stuff from there, and I would I would have little latex masks that were cut up in it, whatnot. So it's kind of funny that you know my my furthest memory that I have is of this makeup kit, and you know I can't think of a memory (laughs) that's earlier than that where Mm -hmm. I actually discovered the kit and put it together. And, and, you know, so it's just, it's always been something that I've been absolutely obsessed with. Wow. So you can't quite pinpoint the moment of whether you saw your mum's makeup first and thought, Hmm, that could be fun to play with or whether, but I'm going to do something more creature orientated and not, and not, <laughs> and not beauty. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can't. I, I honestly, I don't know what that exact moment was I mean the, the earliest memory that I have of really being super inspired by something mm. was uh, watching my stepdad was really into old film and he was watching the original uh, Hunchback with uh, Lon Chaney Senior yeah and that silent film was playing and for you know I, I if I'm remembering correctly I was five years old when this was on and I was on my way walking from the kitchen to my bedroom to go to bed. And I turned around and looked at this screen, and he had a really awesome, huge screen TV that was kind of his theater. Mm. And I was mesmerized by this makeup, so much so that I could barely go to sleep. And it was all I could think about, not because I was frightened of it, but I just was so absolutely enthralled with the idea that that was not how he really looked. Mm. So the next day when I uh, when I woke up, I remember going to that little makeup kit and specifically taking Silly Putty out. Uh, and trying to build up a cheekbone, eye, weird thing, uh, and a pillow on my back, and and try to replicate that makeup. Which you know, it's funny. Whenever I ask my mom about like those really early years, she always says, mm. "Well, I, I thought you wanted to be an, an actor. You know, the way that you were transforming yourself always. You know, I'm an only child. Yeah. And so I was always my own victim, and 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 that I think kind of maybe instilled in in my parents and whatnot that. You know, I liked the idea of becoming and embodying another character and another person and and portraying them. And, uh, you know, I thought that was fun, but I had zero interest in, in being in front of the camera. Yeah, it was more that you just didn't have anyone else to use as a guinea pig. <laughs> I, th- I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine that if I had some other, you know, young, younger brother or something like that, I would probably have been torturing them. But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So at what point do you kind of figure out, do do you feel like you knew immediately that that was a job that somebody had? Or did that kind of thought come later? Yeah, no, good question. I I had no idea it was a job. It was just something that I think I found so, so fun. I mean, I was always such a huge player. I love playing, you know, I mean, I was very much um, 
which I think is true for a lot of uh, only children. They kind of get immersed into these little worlds where they're they're really into these creative outlets of playing. And, and so I absolutely love playing and, and make-believe and all of that. And um, mm. I really felt that the makeup outlet or what I was, what I was dabbling with, I, again, I didn't even know that it was really makeup. I just knew that I liked creating these, these characters and faces and, and I liked changing somebody, you know, I, I thought the idea of disguise uh, was really quite interesting. And, and also it really kind of merged into magic as well. I always kind of bring up magic because magic was a big interest. Uh, and I think that the correlation between the illusion of a magic trick and the illusion mm. that we are as professional makeup artists constantly trying to uh, emulate is trying to fool somebody, you know, to this day, that's, that's my job is I'm trying to fool somebody. And I think I really embraced that and loved that. But no, I had no idea that it was an actual job that, uh, you know, I would eventually go on and, and be paid for. Um, it wasn't until I think I started seeing a lot of behind the scenes videos mm. uh, where, you know, you'd see a, a film and then it was when DVDs kind of first came on the scene. Yeah. And I remember when they started having these special features and I was so obsessed with the idea of like, oh my God, let's watch how they did this stuff. And when I started seeing all of the makeup artists and special effects artists and the way that these films would come together, it was like the light bulb went off. And mm. I go, oh my God, I've been doing this in my bedroom for so long. Mm. I've never even thought that that is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Like that is my new goal. That's what I have to work towards now. So it kind of changed the idea of like, this is just something that I'm doing where I'm playing. Yeah. And it's something that I'm actually going to focus on as a goal as a career. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty incredible that something you enjoy so much that was play is yeah. something that you can continue on to do as an adult and as a career. It's amazing. It, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, and I think that that's key is that it is absolutely play. And I really think oh, there's a quote that I just read the other day that I thought was so fantastic. It was written on a, on a wall and somebody posted on their Instagram, but it was basically saying that uh, the creative adult is, uh, and I'm going to botch the quote, but it's like the creative <laughs> adult um, is the adult that's, uh, th that's child never died. Um, mm -hmm. And I think there's something really powerful about the idea of that, that, that it's still very much, there's a childlike play quality in, in what we do. And, and, and when you're able to kind of tap into that, it's kind of amazing. Absolutely. I have this horrible um, <laughs> line of thought that I always think if an adult tells me that they don't like animation of any kind, I'm like, your inner child is dead. What is yeah. wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, big, big red flags are, 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 yeah. are, are going off for you. Yeah. I'm like, uh oh, there's something wrong. This, right. this person doesn't know how to play. <laughs> this person is clearly a serial killer and we have to be careful. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I guess going through high school and you're continuing to experiment and play around with stuff. So yeah. So, so kind of fast forwarding through that. Yeah. I, um, I went into high school and mm -hmm. I dropped out of high school, uh, promptly after starting pretty much, uh, I was about a year into high school and, you know, I was really doing terribly. I was, I was kind of failing all my classes um, you know, I'm, I'm extremely distracted because all I can think about and all I want to do is this. Mm -hmm. And so again, you know, my mom is just so unbelievably supportive. She, she just saw that that's what I'm going to do. I mean, I remember hearing my mom say this to me so many times and it rings in my, in my head. And it's so funny that she would say it, but she'd always say, look, I know that this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life. So yeah. why am I going to force you to do something Mm. that has absolutely nothing to do with what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And yeah. why not have you be able to start it now? So, you yeah. know, the fact that she saw that and, and acknowledged it, 
um, and also rolled the dice with it and like gambled that like, yeah, this is something that I think he's going to do. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I, I can't thank her enough. It's, it's amazing that she allowed that to happen because I could be, uh, you know, easily eight, you know, eight, nine years behind, uh, mm-hmm. in, in my career. If, if, if it was like, no, you have to, you have to finish high school, then you have to go to college and then we'll uh, figure out what you're yeah. going to do from there. But, you know, for me to be able to drop out of high school, it allowed me to really just like focus on my craft and start working. So literally at 14, uh, I dropped out and I started sweeping floors, uh, at shops and I started freelancing at that age. Actually, Jason Collins, you mentioned, you know, just before we jumped on this podcast is one of those mm. very first people that, that I worked for. That's so cool. I, I love that your mother could see that and had the, oh, just, just the insight to understand that situation because I think so many parents are just like, yeah, as you say, it's just like, no, you've got to finish high school. You've got to go to college. I find that especially have noticed in the States that it is the college education seems to be of the utmost importance, even though you may already know you're not going to use it. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's frustrating. Yeah. Uh, So I think that the, the time, I mean, I'm sure you, you know, people who do go to college, but then don't use whatever it is that they were studying, you know, they probably learned, had life lessons and things throughout that and got something from it. But at the same time to be able to just get out of school and get straight into what, you know, you had a passion for is, is, I think it's pretty lucky. It's awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, it's an interesting point that you make. I mean, it's a little off topic, but the idea that you're having this kind of, um, you're growing up in college in in a sense, right? And Mm -hmm. you're kind of thrown into adulthood, but in a way that's very juvenile, where you're, you're really protected by the idea that you're going to, you're still going to school, you're still going to classes, there's still structure. Uh, oftentimes, you're under this different housing and whatnot. And you've, it's your first time not living at home. But all of mm-hmm. these things, it, it almost, in, in my opinion, actually prolongs the, the childhood experience. Mm-hmm. And that was something really interesting about me jumping into this very adult world so young is that, you know, I was not surrounded by uh, anybody my own age. Mm-hmm. And and I think that it actually forced me to, I mean, I, I was very much a little old soul growing up, but but this really kind of forced me to be uh, an adult in an adult world very, very quickly. And I think that it actually helped me in terms of just the way that I conduct myself in, in business and everything later on in life, because you are not in this kind of party atmosphere. You're you're working and you're in a very adult world. And you know, I was kind of thrown in head first. So I, I really appreciate that I had that experience. Yeah, I think finding your, yeah, you found your professional footing early yes. on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's awesome. So sweeping floors and helping out and then you start, I assume, getting into painting and sculpting and all of this kind of kind of stuff in the workshops. Like how does it work when somebody is fresh and coming into a situation like that? So they can start off sweeping floors and tidying up and then how does that progress? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because even just in the time that I've been in the business, I've watched this progression change mm-hmm. tremendously. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it very much used to be. And, and when I got into the business, it was it was the same way where you, you really have to start from the bottom and mm-hmm. you you do have to clean bathrooms and sweep and and kind of pay your dues. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that we're, you know, you're brand new and you're walking into a, a an atmosphere with people that you respect highly that are that are far more experienced and skilled than you are Mm. Um, so i really tried to be a sponge and just soak up everything i possibly could Mm. and and it took a while before 
I was able to start sculpting and painting. Even though those, those were my two focuses, those were really what I wanted to do. It was it was definitely a while before I, I got to do the amount of that that I actually wanted to. I was given little things here and there, but it, it wasn't really until I got into the Berman Studio mm-hmm. and and started with uh, with Barry and Tom that I was able to kind of grow into that artist and into that that kind of position. You know, when I first started for them, the very first day that I walked into their studio, I worked on a show called The Closer. Mm-hmm. And I was working on detailing a clay pour of a head. And so right off the bat, you know, you would think me being hired as a sculptor per se, that that would be the job that I would kind of be thrown into. But, you know, frankly, my skill set as a sculptor at that point was was not really that high. Uh, mm-hmm. I couldn't I couldn't do anything for them and I wasn't doing it to their level of what they wanted either. Their, the execution wasn't as high. So I really started again kind of from the bottom with them where I really um, I helped out with cleaning out molds and I and I very much was in the lab, you know, to begin with more so than I was in any kind of an art finishing or sculpting position um, at all. Yeah. But that is where I was able to actually hone that skill is because you know, Barry and Tom to this day still are my mentors. Mm-hmm. So to have them at that early age be kind of guiding my eye and training me to see things that I couldn't see. I, I often, you know, it's so funny. We were talking about the college education. I often refer to my years at the Berman studio as my college education yeah. uh, because it was so different. It was like, you know, from my freelance days to winding up at the Bermans that one day, I didn't leave for over 10 years. Wow. So it was, it was really jumping into this industry, you know, head first, like I said earlier, but, but then diving into the Berman studio was like, I'd found my home and they just kind of took me under their wing, embraced me and completely just started training me in so many different avenues. It wasn't just the artistic side of it, but it was also business and how I was kind of orchestrating a studio, hiring people, uh, managing jobs and and supervising uh, these jobs, and I don't really think I even realized to the extent until I look mm. back at it now and see like wow that was a lot of responsibility and I can see exactly what they were doing. But it was it was laying the foundation for me to really understand all aspects of this work. Yeah, absolutely. And so coming up through all of that, do you remember like a single piece of advice that somebody gave you that really has stuck with you? Yeah, I, I, I mean, one one stands out very clearly. One night that Tom Berman had said to me, and it's it's not his quote; it's a quote that that a lot know, but it was the first time that I had really heard it and had it mm. sink in. Uh, and it was always remember that it is the journey uh, and not the destination. Mm-hmm. And it really stuck with me because we can often get really tied up in the idea that we have a goal and we want to reach that goal as quickly as we possibly can. Yeah. And if we're just focused on that, all of the amazing things from our journey, from our freelance career, from from whatever it is that we're doing, from working from other for other people, it almost can get lost in the mix. You're not appreciating that day to day, you know, stuff as much. Yeah, and maybe not enjoying it and having as much fun. Exactly. Yeah, that's very cool. I think it is a good thing to remember. So, at what point? Because you have Vincent Van Dyke Effects Studio. Yeah now yeah. so at what point do you think hey i'm gonna i'm gonna start up my own shop well i mean it was it was always something that i felt like i wanted i had felt all my life that it was like you know my goal would would one day be as a dream to have my own studio 
it was definitely something that was kind of on my bucket list, if you will. Yeah. But kind of going back to that progression at the Bermans, it really laid the groundwork for it. I mean, um, I often say that my career was a lot of baby steps that eased me into positions that felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. And as I continued on with my career there at the Bermans, they were at a point towards the end where they were kind of getting ready to retire. And it really was like kind of a smooth transition of, you know, they still had a few shows going on and it was like, I could still work on these few shows and keep working on these shows for them and then kind of test the waters and start opening up my company. And uh, so that's kind of the way I did it. I just jumped at the chance that felt right. It, it, I think that if I didn't take the leap, I knew in that moment that I would regret it forever. You know, it's, it's, it's all timing. and, And I felt that the time, where it did present itself and it felt like the right moment to do it, that I just had to try it. Yeah. And so I did. I just jumped into the idea of having my own company, you know, got a really small thousand square foot studio space. And it was behind uh, a company out here that we love, Motion Picture Effects. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, had a, they had a large warehouse space and there was just a tiny little area in the back with an office that they just so happened to literally just ask people if they wanted to uh, rent out as a little studio space. So I jumped at it and I, and I did. And I was able to kind of build my own little clientele and my own little crew and, and make some things for some shows. It just felt like a really important step to me to, uh, you know, I almost refer to it as like, you know, moving out of my parents' house yeah. uh, and, and just trying to get my own little apartment and just see what things were like. But it did go full circle to me leaving that space and going back to the Berman studio space, but making it Vincent Van Dyke effects. Oh, wow. Which was a really magical moment for me that, that, you know, my studio now is the old Berman studio and the history there and the, the lineage is just, you know, I, I mean, I, I, there's not a day that I don't walk in those doors that I don't think about it. Yeah. There's not a day that I don't sit in my office and not think that I'm in Tom Berman's old office. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really an amazing thing. And especially still to have such an unbelievably close relationship with both of them. I mean, their family, I talk to them, you know, almost every day. So it's, it's really a, a wonderful thing to have people that, that have, you know, guided me uh, along the way like that. Uh, I just, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll never be able to, to thank them enough. That's amazing. So I guess you kind of feel like you're at home. Exactly. Yeah. I yeah. mean, the comfort, <laughs> the comfort feeling of being able to like go back to a space that I feel like I kind of grew up in mm-hmm. um, and the memories of the different jobs and the different shows and the different artists that came through there. And the, wow. the other thing is like the amazing amount of artists that were working for the Bermans when I came into that space too. You know, I talk a lot about, you know, Barry and Tom and the guidance and, and the uh, influence obviously that they had on my on my artistic perspective and mm. my skill and technical uh, all of that but but also all the unbelievable artists that were working there the technicians that were working there you know I, I was again that sponge i was trying to learn so much from all of those people that were going in and out of those doors who were immense talents you know i'm so grateful to have that as well that's so cool so uh, having such strong mentors in your life do you feel now that you are in a position that you can do that for others i mean i I absolutely would love to. I I don't feel like I have one particular person who I'm like, you know, guiding or honing into a uh, a position, but I definitely feel like when I hire people on my crew, Mm. especially the people who I consider part of the full-time family there, Mm. uh, they're absolutely people that I, I, I strongly take a love for teaching uh, with all of them. And so when they start with me, you know, and I I would hope that they think that, that I'm really trying to guide them into a direction that I feel is the, the right way of doing things. And I say the right way of doing things. And obviously there's 
a thousand ways to do everything uh, in our industry, but it's the way that I like things to be done. And it's the way that I think that things should be done at my studio, mm-hmm. um, which is different from literally every studio in town. And, and I, I love that. I love that my perspective on something is different than Jason Collins perspective on something or Howard Berger's perspective on something. You know, we all are producing the same type of work, but we all still have our own signature ways of doing things. And I think that that's what separates us from each other. Yeah. Um, so I explain that to people that first start working for, for me that, you know, I'm not teaching you the only way to do this. In fact, if I do teach you how to do something that you then go off to another studio and freelance at, chances are they're going to have you do it the exact opposite of whatever I've just taught you. Um, And don't be frustrated by that, you know, keep that in mind. But I do consider that those people that are, you know, walking through my doors that I'm doing that with, that I am mentoring them in a sense and kind of guiding them. That's awesome. I just want to go back a little bit there. And when you were saying about how, you know, you have different ways of doing things and it's like a signature of sorts, do you think that actually ends up coming through on the finished product of how it actually looks? I absolutely do. And I think that you sometimes can't put your finger on what that is. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody might say that it's style mm-hmm. and it can be style. I think that it can be artistic style that's that's really, you know, bleeding through on something. But I, I tend to kind of think a little bit more along the lines of what I think you're getting at is that sometimes there's a signature that just is something you can't even place that mm. I can look at work sometimes and go, I know exactly where that came from, or I know exactly who sculpted that. I know whose studio probably produced that work. Wow. I know how they go about certain things because there is a certain signature to it. And I love that. I think that that's really a special thing. So yeah. it may not be really obvious or blatant, but I do think that that the studios having their own styles is what separates us. You know, when someone is looking for a particular shop to do the work for them, I think that they can see that signature and and, uh, make a choice based off of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such a visual world that it's, you don't want a cookie cutter situation going on, do you? So that's that's amazing. I love that. Hey, now when you're hiring for your shop or studio, should I say, um, Mm. what are you looking for in your artists? That's a great question. I mean, I, I'm not hiring as often as others probably are. I mean, I really try and keep a crew on um, as full time as I possibly can, and yeah. and that is that is true with I think most of the shops in town. We we all have our our kind of base skeleton crew that we we rely on really heavily. Yeah. But that crew is really, I mean, we do ninety percent of all of our work with that base crew. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I have a revolving door of artists that are coming through on a weekly basis. And some studios are set up that way. And partly it's it's because the size of my my company. You know, we hear the the term boutique shop uh, a lot, and uh, mm-hmm. and not that I dislike it or anything. I think it's actually probably an appropriate labeling for our studio because we are a little bit more uh, on the small side and we definitely focus on work in a very specific way where, you know, we can have seven different productions going on at one time, which is a lot for our company, Yeah, but it's still very much heightened attention on every one of those projects. And with that being said, when you have this kind of skeleton crew, we are definitely focusing on it collectively as a company that way. And it's not too many outsiders coming in. But when we do have outsiders come in, I'm usually looking for somebody for that specific talent. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, we are doing a project now where there's a tremendous amount of armatures that are being built internally for these bodies, and they need to be put together in a way that is structurally very, very sound. So I've got a guy, Caleb, who came in to basically weld and engineer these these armatures. And so he's not a, a regular day player with us, but he's somebody who I bring in often uh, mm-hmm. because he is extremely talented at what he does. 
does, and he knows exactly how to do it. So I'm looking for somebody that has that experience and that that body of work that proves to me that they can do it with their eyes closed and somebody who I can rely on. I think because we are kind of turned up to 11 most of the time with the amount of shows that we have going on, I can't really bring in somebody who I can't trust. Mm. I really have to have somebody in there that I know I can walk away from and that can do the work uh, exceptionally, no matter what department they're in. But with that being said, when there are new artists that come in, when we do need extra pair of hands, and it is somebody who maybe doesn't have that experience, that is when I'm looking for work that they've done on their own. That is the biggest thing that I look for personally when I'm looking at someone's portfolio that maybe just graduated school. And the main thing I I mean by that, when I say work being done at home or on their own, I mean the work that they didn't do in school. I don't want to see a portfolio that's filled with only the the tasks that were given to you at school that you had to do, that you did to basically get your diploma or your certificate or whatever it may be to graduate. Uh, Mm -hmm. To me, that that's kind of the bare minimum. You know, if I'm looking at a portfolio that's filled with just those items, it shows me a lack of passion and a lack of dedication, in my opinion, that I would then see in someone's portfolio that is completely just chock full of amazing work that they've been doing on their own in their bedroom. You know, it could be uh, a latex mask, it could be just a sculpture, it could be um, a makeup they did on their, you know, roommate. Uh, Mm -hmm. But all of those things that kind of show me that they've been trying to do this stuff on their own at home from the foundation that they built, whether it was from going to school or maybe they were just learning on their own watching, you know, videos and and, uh, instructional, you know, DVDs and things like that. But but seeing the work that they did on their own, to me, that is what I look for, because I also think that it really tips the hat towards work ethic. Mm -hmm. I think that if you see somebody who's got a really large body of work of stuff that they have done on their own, I think that that gives me a little idea that they have really strong work ethic. Uh, So those are two things that I think stand out really strongly in my mind for, you know, a a fresh uh, portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's going above and beyond, isn't it? Instead of just doing the bare minimum. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. it's exactly it. And I think when you see that, it's impressive because it is somewhat rare, which it shouldn't be, but, but it is. And when I do see it, I'm always... Uh, you know, I've always got a smile on my face because it reminds me of the way that I was in my bedroom. You know, I wasn't going out and socializing and going to parties. I was, I was making latex masks in my bedroom. I was really trying to, to hone my skill as much as I possibly could. And so I love to see that. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I still remember coming from New Zealand, we do both makeup and hair. And in LA, I'm a hairstylist, but mm. back in New Zealand, it was makeup and hair. And I always, I knew from a very early time in doing makeup that I was not a special effects makeup artist because I was like, Mm. I do not have the passion Mm. that these guys have. And I love that they have so much passion about it and they need it because if you don't have it, it's just not, the the work isn't, it's just going to show through the work. And I was like, so figured that out very early. It's just like as much as I love looking at it and think it's just so awesome and amazing I was just like that I cannot put 100% into it so I'm just gonna you know of course be an all-rounder of you know do the bruising and the and the and the cut and the you know the scrape and the bits and pieces like that but the full creature stuff I was just like "Mm, there's like another level of amazingness that I can't focus on it's great that you were able to acknowledge that and, and see that within yourself because I think so many people don't um, yeah. and, and they keep kind of pushing forward and trying to make something happen. But, you know, if you're honest with yourself and you see that, I mean, it's great. I, I, I say, I say this often and it sometimes is uh, perceived the wrong way, but I often say that I think you need to be obsessed 
with the work and and sometimes in almost an unhealthy way uh Mm -hmm. you need to be obsessed with the work because i don't think if you're completely immersed in it you can really get great at it i think when you're in those early years and even beyond you have to really like eat sleep and drink that work it has to be you have to have your life kind of revolve around it and really just have it kind of take over your your entire being yeah, well, it's a lot to learn, isn't it? I mean, it's a lot that, <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah. <laughs> that you're, you're, you're creating. Like, you're, yeah, that's amazing. I, I wonder at the point that you are now, do you continue with education and learning? Absolutely, yeah. I often refer to something that Barry Berman would say is that the day you stop learning uh, is the kiss of death. I hold that very near and dear to my heart because I believe it to be 100% true. I think that anybody that believes that they have gotten to a place where they've kind of mastered something or that they are that they're there is the day that they stop progressing as an artist they've plateaued so i really i i mean i naturally am my worst critic i mean i really i really tear apart everything that i do in probably an unhealthy way and some people have that uh, innately in them and some people, I think, have to kind of work at like, you know, let me analyze my work and figure out what's what's going on. But I think it's really important to be self-critical and look at your work subjectively and constantly try and push the bar. So, yes, if I ever feel like there's not something for me to learn, I would feel as though I should retire and, and not do this work anymore because I'd feel like I've probably lost it and I'm, and I'm not going to I'm not going to progress and I'm not going to be a good artist. And so I'm yeah. going to just pack up my tools and, and go home. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I certainly hope I never get to the point where I stop learning. So how do you think you are still learning? Is it just through pushing yourself within the studio of what jobs you take on and just bettering the end result, like that product that you are creating? Or do you still kind of do formal education stuff or like watch other people's work or mm, like how yeah. how do you normally tend to keep learning i guess from people that you're working with as well right exactly yeah that, that kind of hits the nail on the head for me it's a great question and it's i think it's multifaceted but i think that you just kind of nailed it there is that when you surround yourself with people who you feel are better than you there isn't a day that I walk in my studio where I don't feel like I'm picking something up. I mean, I feel that everybody on my crew, whatever their strength is, whatever their task that I feel that they are kind of the the lead uh, of, that they do it far better than I could do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very important for the person who's running that studio to uh, enlist people that that really can surpass what they are capable of. And so with that being said, anytime that I'm looking at the work that's being produced by any one of them, I am looking at their technique and the way that they're doing something. And obviously I'm still at this point guiding the way that certain things are being done. And I'm, I'm very technical in in the work as well. I mean, uh, you know, we talk about the the fact that I sculpt and paint a lot and that is my primary Mm -hmm. role, but I did start out as a mold maker and casting prosthetics. Those were my two, my two jobs that I probably did the most of when I was freelancing. And uh, so I still really love that. I love being able to break down a mold and look at a mold and uh, really get technical with it. I mean, one of my favorite things is to have Rob Freitas, who is, you know, one of the best mold makers in the world, Mm -hmm. come over to the shop and have a beer and tech talk and talk about molds and look at pictures of molds and and really get in depth on discussing, you know, the engineering of a mold. I love it. And so I'm always learning from those discussions. Uh, You know, Carl Lyon is our mold shop supervisor at the studio in house. And mm-hmm. he is a brilliant mold maker. And so having those discussions, you know, if, if I'm ever in a room where I've got Rob and Carl and we're both kind of, you know, we're spitballing with each other, 
uh, those are moments where my brain is about to explode with with knowledge, and uh, and I love that. You know, I've got uh, Daniel Tiranzi is my lead sculptor and painter, and he's absolutely brilliant. I mean, he was sculpting a baby uh, for us yesterday, and uh, you know, I walked into the the sculpting room, and I was just I was just so floored because he had he had blocked out the head, and it looked amazing. And I walked in a couple hours later, and the head was completely changed. And I asked him about it, and he goes, well, the proportions were wrong. And I noticed that, uh, you know, the eyes needed to be lowered and the back of the head needed to be shaved down. And then I needed to bring the, the mouth a bit lower as well. That self-analyzing quality that he has, I admire mm-hmm. so much. Because to be able to look at your own work in that moment when you're blocking out a sculpture, for example, yeah. and realize what's wrong with it, it, it blows me away. It's still something that I don't feel that I have where, you know, when I'm working on something, I sometimes can't place what's wrong with it. That's what I rely on other people to, you know, be able to help guide me and have those fresh pair of eyes and say, hey, what is it about this that's not working? That's one thing I love about the, the shop is that we all collectively really communicate with each other really well about what's going on. Uh, yeah. Whether it's whether it's artistic or, or, or technical, I think it's important to look at those things and vibe off each other and, and, and figure out what the best way to do something is. So I think those are the ways that I really feel that I'm constantly growing as an artist and a technician. That's very cool. I think too, being open to actually having other eyes look at your work and say, hey, it might just be this bit, you know, because instead of getting your back up and being like, what do you mean? It's perfect. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's certainly times where I think we do that. You know, our ego plays a factor with with all of us. And I think the times that those happen is when you're not looking for it, where mm. you think that you're what you think that what you're doing is good and is mm. is hitting it exactly where you feel that it should. And somebody walks by and says something like, you know, hey, you know, I kind of think that, that that jaw is a little strong. And you're like, you know, what the hell are you talking about? I'm like, yeah. I'm in love with this thing. <laughs> but I think that those are the moments that we have to listen to them even more. Because Mm -hmm. if you start to get too emotionally attached to your work, it's so difficult to change it. It's so difficult to to step away and look at it subjectively. So anytime that I do start loving something that I'm doing, I almost think there's something that there's something must be wrong. Like if I love this right now and I think everything is going fantastic, I probably should walk away and, and look at this again tomorrow with somebody else and be like, okay, what am I doing wrong here? Because I probably shouldn't be enjoying it. Yeah, I think it is the walking away situation. I mean, I even find that with just simply hairstyling. Sometimes I need to actually physically just leave it as it is and be like, go get your costume on, do whatever and come back because then I can clearly see like, oh, okay, I understand now what needs to happen. It's funny you say that because I think I do the same thing. If I'm ever applying a makeup, I, I tend to take it to a place that feels like it's maybe 90% there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's like, okay, let's get the brows on, let's get the wig on, let's get whatever, you know, hair that needs to go on this piece, because it changes everything. And then all of a sudden, it opens up your eyes to things you didn't see before. Yeah. So, you know, it sounds like the same thing for you with other aspects of that complete character where like, all of a sudden, everything kind of clicks into place. And you go, okay, now I can see it. Yeah, because I think sometimes I'm too in it, like I'm in the situation and too close yeah. to it and it's just like hyper focused yeah i need to step back and just see the whole situation and be like oh no now i get it absolutely yeah <laughs> yeah it's awesome so i assume that's something you encourage your team to do as well as continue on with learning and education because i think it would be sad if you kind of notice one of them not yeah for sure it is something that i think you can notice when somebody becomes dormant and they start to plateau a bit and they're kind of in a uh, an artistic rut and you do see that i mean you know it's it's hard with what we do for a living because it is the passion that we had from from little kids right Mm -hmm. and so 
I think because it is that passion, and when you start to blend and marry that passion together with something that you now do for your your livelihood and, you, and you're trying to make money at it, and it is a job that you go to every day, I don't care what it is you do in life and, and how much you love it. There are mm. going to be days that are difficult. There's going to be days that are absolutely grueling and a job. Yeah. And days that I'm looking out the window wishing that I was you know, at the beach. I mean, that, <laughs> that, that of course is going to happen <laughs> in any profession under the sun. So I think that when I do see, you know, one of my artists or technicians or anybody at the shop have those, those moments, that is the time when I do encourage like, all right, you know, I see that you're maybe getting a little bored with what you're doing, or you're, you're getting a little kind of caught up in the fact that it is work and it is a job. Mm. Uh, these are the moments where you have the ability to be able to do the personal projects and you have the ability to be able to step away and work on a, Maybe it's a makeup for yourself. Maybe it's a sculpture. Maybe it's a painting. You know, maybe it's poetry. I mean, it really doesn't matter what it is that you love as a hobby for yourself on the side. Yeah. I think it's just really important to have an outlet, whatever that outlet may be. And I think, thankfully, everybody there at my shop has an outlet that is theirs, that they truly have a separation from, from the studio and the work that they do for uh, us and the work that they do for themselves. Um, And when I see that, it's, it's, that's another whole inspiring factor, you know, in and of itself. And Mm. when I see that, it inspires me to then want to do my personal stuff. Because, you know, at the end of the day, that's the stuff that really gets me excited. Also, I mean, you know, I love what I do. And I love the jobs that the studio brings in. But, you know, the, the true love and passion that I have, I start to get really excited when they're my jobs, and they're my projects where I go, hey, you know, I want to make a Bigfoot suit just to make a Bigfoot suit right now. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going to do. And that's the stuff that is really, you know, getting me my, uh, you know, creative outlet. It's getting my, uh, it's getting it out of my system and then completely letting me, you know, pour that into this project that has nothing to do with the shop work. And I love that. Yeah. I think it's just um, having that vision and following it through and it's all yours, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, completely. Because <laughs> I mean, you're, I mean, you're hired for all sorts of projects and it's, the I guess the origin of that vision is coming from somewhere else. Exactly. Yeah. I've, I've often used the line that we are uh, very talented hands that are here to execute someone else's vision. Yeah, and, that makes and, sense I, and I really think that, yeah, that's, that's one of those things that is hard for a lot of, a lot of artists to embrace and understand. But I do think that if you look at it that way, it is a little easier. And I, mm. and I, I emphasize a little easier because it's still difficult to look at somebody else's design and somebody else's passion project and go, all right, it's not what I would do. It's not what I think should be done. Yeah. Um, but I need to bring my skill set to the table and figure out how I can execute this in a way that fulfills me artistically, but also is executing it to a, a level of quality and, and aesthetic that is going to please them. And yeah. there's an art form in that. And, and trying to find that art form is, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm ever chasing that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, so you guys are doing all sorts of projects. Can you explain that spectrum to me? So how does it all work? So you have small jobs, large scale jobs, you're working on designs with heads of departments or directors or producers or... Yeah, it's it, all of that. Yeah, completely. It's very uh, uh, multifaceted and then the way that we get jobs and who we're working with changes all the time. I mean, you know, we, I would say that more often than not, we are brought in by the, the HOD. We're brought in by that department head of makeup that has chosen us for the work that needs to be done for their film or their television show. Mm-hmm. And then it's a very close collaboration with said department head and, and how we're going to execute the makeup that they need for that show. And it may be for the entire season or the entire film, or it may just be one specific character for one 
you know, specific episode or scene or moment in a film. But that is generally how we get our jobs. And then the other way, of course, is through producers and directors that we've worked with in the past that liked working with us and we have built a relationship with and then they'll bring us back on. And, and that's fantastic as well. Those jobs are different in the sense that we will tend to have a little bit more freedom. Mm-hmm. We tend to structure things a little bit differently with those jobs because we are the first hire. So things are kind of designed a little bit differently. Okay. But those those are kind of the avenues. And then as far as the spectrum of work, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely very broad. I, I would say that my company for the most part is known more for kind of character work and, and, and realistic work, body duplication, character makeup, prosthetic makeup that, that is a little bit more in line with realism, mm-hmm. uh, a little less of the fantasy and creature work. We, we tend not to get as much of that. And uh, it's I'm not actively not trying to get that. It's just mm-hmm. companies often do get not pigeonholed, but they, they get a reputation that's built on the type of work that I think they have the most experience with and that their portfolio shows off the the most. Yeah. And for us, it's that, you know, it's a lot of medical work. It's a lot of body duplication. It's a lot of old age and character work. Thankfully, that is my favorite type of work to do. So uh, it's cool. it's nice that we were able to start landing a lot of that work really early on and be able to have that be our bread and butter because it just so happens to be my favorite type of work. Um, But more recently, we have been able to kind of broaden our horizons and work on some stuff that has definitely stretched our artistic muscles. And we've gotten into the world of fantasy a lot more. I mean, we just finished uh, last year Star Trek Picard, uh, which was a huge undertaking for us. Uh, it was probably the largest scale show that we've ever worked on uh, in terms of the uh, number of, of aliens and uh, creature work that we were uh, producing out of the company. It, it by far was the most volume, by far the most people uh, hired at one time. That was a huge, huge undertaking for the company. And it was also probably the furthest away from our comfort zone. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. I mean, when we got that job, I think I had one alien uh, in our portfolio as a company, um, wow. which is is interesting because you would think that the company that had that one alien would never get that job. I tip my hat to the production on that show because oftentimes we run into producers that think if I don't see it in your portfolio, it means you can't do it. Mm. Uh, which is awfully frustrating, I think, for us yeah. as, as artists in general, right? I mean, it's like, I think we all suffer with the idea that if I don't have this specific thing you're looking for, you automatically believe that my skill set is not uh, capable of executing it. Yeah, uh, It just couldn't be further from the truth. It's like, you know, for me, when I we talk about looking for certain things in a portfolio, well, if somebody showed me their portfolio and they had a perfect nose prosthetic, a nose mm-hmm. prosthetic that looked 100% realistic, it was applied brilliantly, it was colored beautifully, it was blended nicely, I would be very, very, very impressed with that. I would be far more impressed with that than I would be a full creature makeup in their portfolio. Yeah. Uh, I think it's I think it's far more difficult to execute really, really well. And Mm -hmm. I have enough, you know, wherewithal to know that if they can execute that nose really well, that they're going to be able to execute a creature really well, because they have that that detail finite experience on how to do that. I kind of think that that production was looking at us that way for Picard, where, you know, when our initial meeting, they had a conversation with us that was really geared around the idea that they wanted these aliens to feel super realistic, organic, natural, part of the story, not distracting, not something that's going to take you out of it, really have something that just feels like it kind of blends in with everything else, which really just 
it sparked my interest and got me so excited about a project that I was already really excited about. And it made me feel like we actually were the perfect shop for that production. Uh, so it really kind of instilled that in me, which was amazing. Yeah, I was going to say that while you were while you were explaining that you didn't have you know much alien work in your portfolio, but I was just like, it's probably the realism that they're drawn to, and because it it is actual humans in human form, but you're manipulating that to make them look like they're from another universe or planet. It's still, you still want it to look real and believable. Exactly. So. I mean, everything we do is based in reality. I always say that. I mean, even if you're giving me an alien or a creature or, or just some crazy fantastical thing, we are still basing it in reality. We always are. I mean, we're looking at nature. We're looking at insects. We're looking at aquatic life. We're looking at people, we're looking at deformities. I think when we pull from nature is when we're able to execute something that subconsciously feels real to a viewer that otherwise wouldn't know why something didn't feel real. And that that to me is a, is a goal that I will always try my best to, to get to, uh, where, again, I think that the average person may not be able to point the finger at exactly what doesn't work on a makeup, but they mm-hmm. can always tell you when something doesn't work. They yeah. just don't know what it is, but you know, they, they can easily say, and often I actually respect the opinion of somebody who is so far outside of our business when they do uh, or do not like something. Mm. I think that they have a great eye for it because they're so unbiased and they're, they're going to be subjective in a way that completely comes from a place of just pure aesthetic quality, looking at it, just saying, you know, this feels right or it feels wrong. But I do, I do feel that subliminally they are going to be innately drawn to something that is at least somehow based in nature Um, Mm. because I think we associate nature with something that feels plausible. Uh, And if we're able to kind of convey that in the work, then I do believe that that viewer is going to accept it more readily than somebody that goes, all right, I'm going to throw 15 noses on this alien and completely (laughs) just go crazy with some really fantastical design that is just out of my imagination on an, you know, on an acid trip that I had in, in, (laughs) in my early years, you know, Hey, it's cool. And I love it. And I love the, the expression uh, Mm. and I love where someone's going with it, but it's definitely not the way that I approach the work that we do. Yeah. No, it makes total sense. I mean, that viewer, you know, they want to believe what they're seeing. Exactly. That's very cool. So are there certain makeup department heads that you have worked with multiple times? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think the relationships that we build with department heads are, they they are such a huge reason why the studio continues to work. Mm. I mean, you know, building, building relationships that are with people that you feel like you can collaborate with really well is also extremely important. I mean, you know, the last thing in the world you want is to be hired and feel like a vendor that is just supplying a makeup artist with pieces that they could have bought from the store. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's not, it's not something where we want to just feel like we're filling orders. And, you know, if if I'm getting that feeling, then, you know, it's, it's very clear that this isn't the type of relationship that I, I want as a collaborative artist. And as somebody who runs a studio in that manner, you know, I want somebody who I'm having conversations with that are really open to the discussion across the board of design, execution, how we're breaking a makeup down, the color of, of the prosthetics, you know, just kind of everything. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many that we work with that are great with that. I mean, Aaron, 
Kruger McCash, right off the top of my head, is definitely someone who continually comes to us to to do work with in that collaborative way that I absolutely love. Uh, Chris Nelson, uh, we work with often uh, in that way and really is a collaborative designer with us where, where we are able to kind of run with him on a show and feel like it is something that we're building together, which I love. Kate Bisco, Susie Diaz, Debbie Zoller, James McKinnon, Kazu Hero is, is a prime example of somebody who I absolutely love working with on all of his shows. I mean, he is, you know, I put him on a pedestal of, of Ooh, greatness. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's really uh, a side of this that I absolutely love is, is the collaborative nature of what we do. I mean, that's to me where you can have magic happen because you are able to have someone else's perspective join in on that discussion and, and create something that you normally would not have been able to create on your own. Yeah. So what has been one of the most challenging projects do you think that you've taken on? whether it's just you individually in the past or the studio itself? It's probably a project that I can't speak tremendously about because it's still in production. Uh, okay. But An- Angeline uh, okay. is the show that we were on before the lockdown, and mm-hmm. it was completely the most challenging show I've ever been on in my entire career. Wow. But it was also by far the most rewarding. Mm, they uh, normally are, I think. <laughs> yeah, they, they do go hand in hand, don't they? Mm. Um so, so yeah, and, and for so many reasons uh, across the board on both sides of that fence. Yeah. But that to me, and, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm asked often, what is your favorite thing that you have worked on? And uh, I always answer that with, it's usually the thing that I'm either currently working on uh, <laughs> or, or the last thing that I just finished mm-hmm. because I think it's the most fresh in the mind. Exactly. It's fresh. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I think because we're all so self-critical of ourselves that it, it hasn't aged enough for me to hate it. Right. Uh, and <laughs> so, and that's most of the stuff that we do is like, you know, after a certain amount of time, when I look back at it, I've, I've been able to pick it apart so thoroughly that I, I start to absolutely not like the look of it anymore. Um, I think you've just made me realize that I do that as well. Because if somebody <laughs> gives me a compliment about something I did like a couple of years ago, I'm like, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, oh, thanks. That's really nice of you to say, but ooh. <laughs> But that's why. Yeah. Yeah. Jimmy, I think that's, I think that's why we do that. I think because we, we have already grown past that point. We already yeah. know that we could do better. And if, and if you look at, it, I mean, obviously these are things we would never say to a production. We would never say, no. you know, Oh God, don't look at that. You know, I can, I can do better now. Uh, but I think that for us as artists, I think that acknowledgement of the fact that, that we can do better, that we mm. can move past something is, uh, is kind of huge. So, so when it's fresh in the mind and it's something that we just finished that we think is, you know, up to at least a standard that we currently, are accepting of ourselves. Yeah. Um, I think that's the stuff that I, I, I tend to favor. And so Angeline was that for me as a whole. We were doing that with Kate Bisco. She was the uh, department head and, and designer on it. Awesome. Along with us designing the prosthetics for the show, it ended up being a really massive prosthetic show, more so than I think I even anticipated going into it. Uh, and Angeline, just to uh, give you a quick uh, rundown, especially for anybody listening who's not mm. in Los Angeles. Mm. Um, Angeline is a woman who drives around in a pink Corvette in Hollywood and has been doing it for, uh, you know, I'd say since the early uh, 80s, really, and got famous for putting herself on billboards. She was really kind of doing the social media thing before social media existed and really kind of shoving her, her content down everyone's throat in a way before you could have that being done on Instagram or Facebook or whatever it may be. Right. Uh, and she got absolutely famous for it. And uh, so to this day, <laughs> she drives around in this pink Corvette and sells merchandise and is still doing it. That's amazing. This show was starring Emmy Rossum, who is portraying her throughout her life from the age, you know, early age 
you know, on. And uh, it's really kind of a fantastic piece. And that has been awesome. That's been a really uh, amazing, amazing job for us. That's very cool. I look forward to, um, I think I saw a little clip of it and it, it did introduce me to who she was. Yeah. Because I hadn't, I wasn't aware of it being a, you know, someone from out of town. And it is that thing of just like, what are you famous for? <laughs> You're being famous so. for, yeah, you've, uh, it's amazing. She, uh, I think it's quite incredible. <laughs> she was kind of like a, uh, uh, like the Kim Kardashian of her time where it's like, how, what is, where did you come from and why, why are yeah. you, why what? are you so famous? Uh, but I, but I love the fact that she was able to do that that way. And this, and this story tells it, you know, really well without giving anything away. It's really cool. been a cool, a cool thing. We've had uh, Mike McCash as uh, kind of the prosthetics lead for her on it, doing the makeup with Kate and just been a, it's been a brilliant job. It's really been one of my proudest. That's awesome. So is there a type of project that you haven't done yet that you would like to kind of sink your teeth into? Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there are, it's funny because the work that we do, it's very repetitive in the sense that sometimes we'll get a job that we've done a hundred times in a sense. Mm. Meaning if we're hired to design and create an old age makeup, you know, one could say that you've done, you know, 20 old age makeups prior to it. How could you get excited and how can you, you know, really get inspired to to create this new old age makeup? But to me, they're all individually so incredibly different. And it's something that I always try and remind my crew of as well, because we can easily start to get in that monotony where we're like, okay, we've done this so many times. How many babies have we done? How many, you know, um, uh, surgery pieces have we done or pregnant bellies or whatever these things may be. Uh, mm. But the, the truth of it is, is that every single one of them is absolutely unique. And this goes back to something that Tom Berman used to always tell me, which in the moment would be extremely frustrating. Mm. But he would say that, you know, everything we're doing that we're sending to set is a prototype. And it really sunk in with me later on when I realized, holy shit, he's right. Even if it's something we've done before, it's the first time that mm. we did it on that actor. It's yeah. the first time that we sculpted it that way and molded it that way because every single time you do it, even if you had a forehead appliance and you set up 10 positives of all mm. of these different 10 talent the exact same way, all 10 of those forehead positives have their own parameters and their own nuances to them that can either cause problems mm. or you know make things more successful. I mean, so the reason why I'm saying all of this is that I feel that there are so many jobs that we've already done that I've absolutely loved. Mm. But if I got a call tomorrow to do a job that sounded identical to it, I would be just as excited because it's a whole new set of parameters that allow us to explore that job again. So for me, like old age and character makeup is still the thing that I find the most interesting and the most fascinating to do. Mm -hmm. So if I get a call next week for a massive old age job where I've got to you know, have, uh, you know, five or six age progressions for the entire film. To me, that is the job that I get the most excited about that I'm like, you know, through the roof, you know, giddy, yeah. like that little boy in me where I'm getting excited <laughs> to play yeah. starts to come out in me. And so even though we've done jobs that are in a sense, similar to that, I haven't gotten that exact call uh, mm. with those actors and and that story. Um, so that starts to get me really excited about the work that I that I love. So I think that to me, it's driven by the type of work that I really enjoy doing, which is that that realistic character work. And uh, so anytime we get a call for a job like that, I'm um, I'm very very excited. That's awesome. I love the way you look at that. I think others may forget that subtle yeah. little point. I think that's yeah, it's very cool. So. Now that you've, how long have you had your studio? Uh, we are going on ten years. That's awesome! Congratulations! Yeah, we're, we're <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're. I think we're about to hit that ten year mark. Uh, it's really been uh, an amazing journey for us, and you know, it's it's funny. It actually it correlates really well with 
with me meeting my wife. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, my wife, Sasha Camacho, uh, who is our hair department head of the studio, she does all of our, our lace uh, wigs and brows and facial hair. She she punches all of the hair on everything that we do. I mean, she's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, beautiful work. I always say that she's the icing on the cake for for everything <laughs> that we do. Yeah. You know, I, I met her right before I opened up the doors to my shop. And so, you know, to uh, to kind of make that that connection, it's it's that journey that that we've kind of had together of uh, of going through this and, and reflecting on it and having her by my side through that whole thing has been that's been really magical. It's nice to be able to work with somebody that you're in a relationship with that doesn't feel like you're down each other's throat the whole day. Yeah. You know, it's like we there's enough separation with what we do in our departments where she can be absolutely in her own world for an eight hour day. Mm. And I'll see her once popping my head in, giving her a little wave mm. and that's it. And, and so even though we work together and it's got that really lovely comfort feeling of knowing that we're together while we work and that we're just kind of flowing through the studio together and, and creating together, we're not butting heads and bashing together. I mean, it's not like she's, she's sculpting with me or she's, she's making molds with me or anything like that. It's, it really has enough separation where it feels like this great dance, which uh, I appreciate so much. Yeah, that's very cool. Hey, so now that you've been doing this for coming up 10 years, what skill set do you think is necessary to run a makeup effects studio successfully? It's a really good question. Mm. Uh, I think it's a subjective, <laughs> it's a subjective question as well. Yeah. I think that we would all have really, really specific um, answers to that. I mean, obviously, if you asked every studio owner, they're probably going to give you a different response. I guess what's um, worked for you? <laughs> yeah, I, I think... So, okay. So that's, so what's worked for me and the reason why I opened up my studio, it goes back to a, a story with Tom Berman. Mm -hmm. It was a day where, uh, and I've told this story before. I don't think I've told it on a podcast though. It is a time where there was probably 10 people working in the shop. And that day, uh, everybody screwed up. Everybody in that shop had messed up what they were doing. And uh, I, you know, I had broke a mold in half. It was an autopsy scar that I was needing to mold and cast that same day. And I made the mold. I broke the mold. Mm -hmm. And you know, again, everybody in the shop had just done something wrong. And, and I remember Tom walking through these double doors uh, of the shop and looking around and checking in with everybody and just being you know devastated, obviously, because everything was going so terribly wrong. Yeah. And he just asked us all to go home in a very polite nice way. It wasn't like you guys are fired and aggressive and, you know, um, making us all feel like shit. It was mm. just like, Hey guys, just, you know, pack it up. I'll, I'll see you guys in the morning. And, uh, really hard for me. Cause I'm just like, Oh my God, I, you know, I want to stay and help you. I want, I want to make all this right. I want to try and at least do my part on what I did mm. to, to fix it. And, and he said, you know, Vince, it's just better if I'm just left alone. And so everybody left, uh, we, we grabbed our, our stuff and we took off for the day. Mm. Uh, but that next morning when we walked into the shop, Every single piece that had screwed up was all laid out on a table and it was done beautifully. Mm. Uh, my mold was repaired and a silicone prosthetic was cast from that mold. And everything else that was, was wrong that day had been either corrected or redone. Mm. And it was laid out on this table. I mean, he must have worked all night to do this. And it was this serene moment. The studio was also immaculate, by the way. He like cleaned everything too, which was like, okay, on top of it, dude, you had to, you had to do that. Uh, <laughs> But, but, you know, we all kind of looked at each other and we didn't say anything. You know, we all just went back to what we were doing and we grabbed the stuff. And a lot of that stuff was being picked up that day, you know, by production to, to literally go out to shoot. And it was that day in that moment that that light bulb went off for me and said, okay, I know you want to have a studio. You need to learn every aspect of this job well enough mm. that if your crew decided that they all had to take off because they went out and um, got food poisoning at lunch. Mm. They didn't decide to do that. It happened. You know, they didn't yeah. ask for it. <laughs> but, 
But if they but if they all got food poisoning at lunch and they can't work and they literally are all running home and they're and they're throwing up, whatever's going on, mm. um, are you stuck with a position where you are wringing your hands because you don't know how to do most of the tasks in your own company mm. and you're like, well, we're screwed. I'm going to have to call production and tell them that they can't have this tomorrow or I've got to scramble and try and call people to come in right now. It was that moment that I was like, all right, I want to be able to know, not master, not be the best at, but at least know enough mm. to get by in every aspect of the work that my studio is going to produce. Yeah. Uh, and not only for the fact that I could be able to do it if somebody were to go down or be sick or have to go home or whatever it may be, but also for the fact that I think it's really important to be able to look at the work and know what's right and wrong, know what's going to potentially be a problem down the line, be able to stop somebody and say, hey, I've been in your shoes. I've done that. I've, I've, I've cast pieces. I've sprayed baldies. I know exactly why that's not going to work. Um, I know why that's going to lock. I know why that paint job is going to go muddy if you continue on. All those little things that I think a good supervisor or a good you know shop owner can look at and see for me was instilled in me that day and, and made me realize, okay, that to me is a key factor for me to have a successful studio. And, and the flip side of that as well is for me personally, it mm-hmm. meant that I need to be at the studio always. It, it meant that I am not going to actively go to set very often at all. In mm-hmm. fact, it's going to be very rare for me. And I'm only going to go, you know, a few days here and there that mm-hmm. 90% of the time I am at my studio every single day. And there's not a piece that doesn't leave my studio without my eyes uh, looking at it. I feel that I owe it to anybody who's hiring my company that, you know, my name is literally on the product and it deserves my attention in some capacity to make sure that it upholds um, that signature that we talked yeah, about. Absolutely. That's amazing. God. Can't imagine. Oh, I feel like I would end up doing something like that too. What what he did is just be like, just everybody go mm. home. I'm just go sort this out myself. <laughs> it's it, it's so relatable, isn't it? Like it's such yeah. a relatable thing. And and every time I think about it, I go, you know, because I've had I've had moments like that in my shop where I, I I literally think about that day and I go, Tom, I totally get it. Like I want everybody to leave because mm. there are certain things that are faster done yourself than explaining to someone else what to do. Yeah. Luckily, I'm at a point now with my crew and the people that I have at my studio where they know exactly what I want. I mean, yeah. I'm so fortunate and so fucking lucky mm. to have a crew that they're going to do something. They have to ask me very little about it. And they, because they've done it for so long for me now, I mean, I've had, I have people that have been with me now for 10 years that yeah. are, are absolutely in sync with me. And so mm. I don't have to sit down and go over it at nauseum to them. It's like they know the color of something I want. They know how soft I want something plasticized. They know exactly how I want a mold broken down. They know exactly the way I would sculpt something. It's like it's like this dance where everybody is in sync with each other and we all have that same common goal and same aesthetic that we're we're driving at, which I think collectively makes that signature. And when we all work together to make whatever it is that we're making, I think collectively we have that collaborative nature where it then has its own embodiment of what my studio represents. It really represents all of us collectively having very similar, you know, standards. And and I love that. I love the fact that we're all kind of trying to uh, reach that common goal on a daily basis. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And I would love to understand a little bit more, I think, too, about the fact that you've had people with you for that amount of time. And yeah. it's just like, what is it that, what are, what are you doing to keep them? <laughs> just, oh. I mean, management skills of creative 
artists can be very difficult I think and especially with when you've got time crunches and you've got you know just getting so busy and the hours that you can do and things like that I think it's a wonderful thing that you have had people working under you for that long that continue to want to work with you like it's amazing well thank you i mean i i, I try and think that that's what it is but truly it's just that i i threaten them all on a daily basis <laughs> <that they're really laughs> okay so <laughs> um yeah, I, I think that you know it's funny when I when I got into this business, especially when I when I realized that I wanted to definitely own my own studio and that was that was the goal. Never did I realize just how much work the business side of it was, the mm. orchestrating of the teams and the personalities. There's you know to say that the day to day activity that I go through is dealing with people and the people are the work mm. is an understatement. I mean, mm. I, you know. The, the work, you know, you can do the work, but it's the people that will just drive you insane. And I don't mean that being my crew specifically. I just mean yeah. that in general, it's dealing with so many different personalities and so many different people on so many different levels on a daily mm -hmm. basis that you're like, I'm, I'm done. I, I don't, I don't want to talk to anybody right now. <laughs> I just want to go sculpt or mm -hmm. I just want to go paint or I just want to go do something. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the biggest thing for me was to learn how to manage and deal with people and figure out the best way to communicate with different personality types, how to handle different types of people and manage different types of people. And so that's been a really a really large aspect to the job, I think, that I, I do enjoy. I do enjoy, uh, you know, having that ability to orchestrate these teams, but it is difficult. But I, I like to think that the reason why so many people have stayed with us for so long is I try and make it as much of a family atmosphere as I possibly can. We're, we're mm -hmm. very sheltered. Uh, at the company, we're very, we are very small, and I am very selective on who comes into our world because it is so specific, and and what we are driving at with that signature and the quality is so specific. I mean, I talk about how everybody kind of collectively knows what I like, but mm -hmm. you can imagine the difficulty of bringing somebody fresh in who mm. maybe has thirty years of experience, who's fantastic. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean they're not going to do the job right. They're just not going to do it the way that I want it. Yeah. And sometimes I'm open to the idea of, hey, please come in and show me something new. Show me the way you do something. I would absolutely love to see it, but it isn't necessarily sometimes the way that I, I think it should be done. And uh, so I think collectively when we all have that same ideology, it makes them want to still be a part of that because so many people that have worked for me have freelanced other places and they have gone to other places to experience the way that things are run differently. Mm -hmm. And I think that they they like the idea of having the comfort of knowing that often once they start to learn the way that I like something, they can then adopt the way that they like something, but they're still executing it to the level that I want. And I think yeah. that that's really a specific reason why so many people enjoy working at the shop is that I am a big micromanager in the beginning, mm -hmm. but I start to become less of that micromanager when you're giving me the quality and the style of work that I expect. Yeah. And a lot of the time, that means that they're finding their own ways of doing something. You know, we've got a girl, Gwen Ramsey, who's been with us now for, I believe, a little over five years. Mm -hmm. And she is a phenomenal artist across the board. But she is a great example of somebody who came in really, really fresh. Mm. And we were able to kind of mentor and guide into something. But she now Again, she's one of those people who absolutely does her job better than I could. And I respect and appreciate that so much where I'm able to completely hand something over to her and at the end of the day have it be exactly what I want. But she's doing it her own way. She's getting there in her own process. She's talking to, you know, Carl, for example, or 
you know, somebody else in the shop to help kind of figure out the best way for the mold to be broken down, for the best casting to come out, to be able to fit an internal skull inside of for something that she's going to fabricate down the line. I think that the key there is really great communication within that family of artists that are working together. And if you have that great communication where they're kind of riffing off each other, it builds that atmosphere that I think they enjoy. And so I hope that those are all the reasons why they continue to want to be a part of the company and that we are all kind of still standing for a signature and a quality that we all feel is where we should be. And and sometimes we don't hit it. Um, But that's okay, because we're striving to to hit it every time. But it's just, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna win them all. But it's it's what we try and do. Yeah. Do you do you find that if you verbally actually say to somebody when you start working with them, like, yes, I you may find that I am micromanaging you a bit. But as time goes on, as you what you're explaining, do you think it's good for them to know that? It probably would be if I told them that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just wondering. (laughs) It's just like just that because when you're talking about that, you knew that you needed to learn how to manage people. It's just like, well, how did you do that? It was it just uh, just figuring out it out as you go and be conscious that you needed to. I think, I think it's trial and error. I mean, I probably, I mean, I'm probably less aware of it, but I mean, if you talk to somebody who worked for me, you know, even 10 years ago, you would probably find that I was maybe terrible at communicating what I wanted or giving them the the guidance that I needed. I, I know that I was definitely a lot harder on people when I first was a supervisor. And I was, especially when I was working for the Bermans as a supervisor, when, when I was put in the position of a supervisor there, I, I feel that I was I was harder because it was for somebody else. Mm. And I think that having the pressure of knowing that not only do I think that it should be a certain quality, a certain standard, but I also have the legacy of the Berman studio held above my head and that I need this quality to even exceed my expectations. Yeah. And I think that I was even harder on people and really cracked the whip more than I probably do now because of that idea that it needed to be that. I think at, at this point now, I've really softened a lot in the, in the idea of how I communicate what I want because there's no reason for it to be aggressive and there's no reason for it to be you know not fun. I mean, we want to push people and we want them to do better. And, and I do think that I am still very specific with what I, what I want. I mean, I, you know, Will Thornton uh, runs our silicone casting department. He's kind of a great example of somebody who, you know, got put in that position, you know, exceeded uh, my expectations uh, quite quickly and, and did a wonderful job with it. But I think specifically, he would be somebody who could tell you like, you know, no, he'll throw pieces in the trash because uh, of that quality uh, that he's looking for. And I'm not afraid to do that. I, I definitely want him to not only become a better prosthetic technician casting pieces, but mm-hmm. I also want to make sure that I'm being true to what I think is the best prosthetic that is going to be put into those makeup artist hands that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. The last thing in the world I ever want to have happen is a makeup artist to call me and go, Hey, you know, I can't burn through this edge and uh, the color of this piece is totally wrong. You know, to me, that's, that's, that's beyond devastating. Yeah. Uh, so, and I think that's the reason why I, I am the way that I am and the way that we run things is the way that we do. But I think that that's part of it is learning how to do it. I mean, the evolution of the way that I'm learning how to orchestrate a team uh, is going to be something that evolves and that I continue to learn just mm-hmm. as I continue to learn, you know, how to be a better artist. I think that that isn't going to stop either. I mean, I think that the way that I manage a crew will probably evolve. And if you were to ask me this question five years from now, it'll probably be different than the way I answer it now. Yeah. I guess when you're dealing with different um, personalities as well, it's just, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Evolving. That's amazing. Yeah. So um, I wanted to ask, so if you're in your studio, you've got all your tools and all your knickknacks and everything that you love, but I was to take away one thing, what would you <laughs> what would you not want that to be? Like the one thing that you're like, oh man, I can't get through my daily my daily grind without that. 
one tool oh, wow. product? Wow, that is um, like, that is a difficult question. <laughs> I, I think I, so. I think it's almost impossible for me to answer because I'm thinking of it in such a broad spectrum. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's easier to ask that, like, if you're if we're talking specifically about life casting and then talking about like making a positive and then talking about sculpting, like every one of those facets. I know there's probably <laughs> one thing within each one of those that I can't live without. Um, okay. Collectively, all together, yeah. I, I, I I'm trying to think of the one product that I'd be like lost without i mean i I, honestly i think the the, uh the thing that's like ringing in my mind which is has very little to do with the shop but i i mean skin illustrator palettes to me are 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 heavenly i mean i can't Mm -hmm. imagine i can't imagine not having that to do a makeup and i and i use them when i'm doing finishing detail work on our silicone duplications a fake head or a fake body or anything like that i'll use them as well okay pre-painting prosthetics i mean that's that's definitely one that i feel like is ringing very very true in my in my head there you go. There's always one that kind of pops up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. And who would you like to hear on the podcast? Oh, it's another really good question. Um, I would love to, you know what, I, I mentioned him earlier, and I think he would be a, a wonderful listener just because he's also coming from the, the lab perspective of things, mm-hmm. uh, is Rob Freitas. I think he would be a, an excellent person to chat with. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Love it. Thank you so much for your time today, Vincent. It's been so amazing chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, uh, I'm honored to be on your podcast. For links to see more about our guests, go to our Instagram at The Last Looks Podcast or our website, thelastlookspodcast.com. If you want to keep up with new episodes being released, be sure to subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google Play, YouTube or any podcast streaming platform. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, share it. The Last Looks podcast would like to thank Brett Stanley and Sabrina Castro. The song Fun Time by DJ Quads. Thanks for listening. Until next time. That's a wrap, people.